4: this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage.
2: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Have I mentioned that I don't like Texas? Yeah, just a couple times. Yeah. I'm from Missouri, live in Missouri, as listeners know, and Missouri has its own very serious problems, as Missourians know, but Texas... Do you know that the University of Texas just blew up the entire Big 12 conference by deciding to bail out and join the SEC? Just blew it up, just left after we had rescued them. from. Uh, you don't want to get into all that stuff. Um, although, to be honest, I will have to admit that the University of Missouri already blew the Big 12 conference up a bunch of years ago by moving to the SEC. So I don't really have a leg to stand on there.
4: Uh, Minnesota's in the Big Ten. <laughs> yes, which is like where...
2: Where KU wants to go, I think that's my dad's alma mater and the team that I cheer for around here. Anyway, speaking of Missouri's problems, there are also a bunch of state lawmakers in Missouri who want to pass the exact same kind of abortion law that just passed in Texas, SB 8, barring abortions after six weeks and giving $10,000 in civil damages to any citizen vigilante who uh, who successfully sues anyone who, quote, unquote, aids and abets in an abortion from a doctor to a driver.
4: We are not doing that in Minnesota. Let's
2: rub it in. Maybe Missouri is just like, maybe Missouri is just Texas without the oil is the problem. That's why I get so mad at Missouri. I mean, I mean, I get so mad at Texas.
4: That's bad, but maybe it's better not to have the oil. Look,
2: either way, it's bad enough that we want to talk about the implications of Texas's new abortion law and the prospect of ending Ro, the, ending the Roe v. Wade era, not just in Texas or Missouri, but across the nation. Later in the episode, we'll talk to Katherine Nurnberger, most recently the author of The Witch of Eye* and Rue.
4: But first, we're going to talk to Elizabeth Wetmore. Beth is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is the recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and two fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, as well as a grant from the Barbara Deming Foundation. In addition, she was a Rona Jaffe Scholar in Fiction at Breadloaf and a Fellow of McDowell. In the spring of 2015, she was one of six Writers-in-Residence at Hedgebrook. Her 2020 novel, Valentine, which we're going to talk about today, is a New York Times bestseller that the Boston Globe called a blast of feminist outrage. Beth, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So we asked you here because you were born in Texas and your novel, Valentine, is set in Odessa, Texas, where you grew up. And we would very politely like to ask you, what the fuck is going on down there?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, such a big question, right? Um, yeah, I think I, I joked in one of my emails, I think I've been asking myself what the fuck is wrong with Texas, you know, since I was about nine years old. Um, but, uh, you know, it, and I was born and raised there. I left when I was 19. Um, so a very young woman. I still have family in that area and I get down there as often as I'm able Um I, I uh, you know, in a lot of ways, SB 8, what we're talking about today is just the absolute logical continuation of the war that's been going on down there for decades. You know, it's, it's, which it's just a I'll horrifying... say real
2: quickly, stands for Senate Bill 8, which is the Texas abortion right. law popular right. known. So please right. go ahead.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, when I on September 1st, when I was sort of, you know, scrolling through news in a sort of blind rage, I mean, just for shits and giggles, I went on to one of those websites like, you know, findaclinic.org, where you can tap in your address and get a sense of where you can get, you know, an abortion if you should need it. And I went in and put in my my street address where I grew up in Odessa. And for women in my hometown, you know, the only difference between August the 30th and September 1st is about an extra 150 miles. You know, they were already driving several hundred miles to get an abortion. So you know, SB8 is awful, <laughs> um, you know, and horrifying. Um, but for a lot of women in Texas, the difference between SB-8 and pre-SB-8 is not really that different. So uh, heartbreakingly. And and of course, I'm speaking specifically about women in rural areas and poor women.
4: We've already done a What the Fuck Texas episode. It's kind of starting to be a recurring theme on this show. Whitney has issues with Texas. But, uh, you know, today we're We're going to talk. We're talking specifically, as you mentioned, about SB eight. Yeah, the central
2: characters in your novel. And yes, I do have specific issues. I'm sorry, Missouri is a lot like Texas, and just has an inferiority complex. Like we're not quite as terrible, but we're also not good.
1: Yeah, y'all don't have oil money, and that's kind of a game changer. But and honestly, I don't blame anyone for being pissed off at Texas. I'm pissed off at Texas. You know, so I mean, I'm also you know really mindful of and i thought about this a lot you know that i'm i'm mindful of the importance of not confusing people with their rulers that is true <laughs> you know and in the case of texas which has such a a long history of voter disenfranchisement and suppression and you know intimidation frankly and and really low voting rates even before the most recent sort of attacks on people's ability to you know vote i think that there's a, a real You know, there's a real distinction to be made between the rulers and those who are being ruled. Right. So speaking with with some notable exceptions of some white women who have, you know, tethered their donkeys to those jackasses (laughs) because they prefer their status and their money over. Right. You know, their right to choose. And of course, for those women, SB8 is a no brainer. Right. They just get on an airplane in Dallas and fly to Chicago and check into the Hyatt Regency and do a little shopping on Michigan Avenue before their procedure and go home, right? And that's unfortunately, I mean, the, the real horror of SB8 is the same horror that women have already been living with, right? Which is that, you know, if you don't have a reliable car, <laughs> if you can't disappear from your life for a couple of days to drive across state lines, you know, if you um, have young children to care for, right? I mean, if you don't have any money, Right. You're you're really just kind of stuck. But that was true before SBA. So. Well, speaking
2: of that history, your novel, uh, Valentine, is, a, is about the central characters are women living in Texas in 1976, which is just a few years after Roe versus Wade passed. And it's referenced in the book. You were growing up in Texas at that time. Let's start there. What was the attitude of Texans toward abortion around that time? Uh, you know, just a few years after Roe v. Wade was becoming, and before it had been, at least on a national level, politicized in the way that it is now. How do people talk about it when you were growing up, and how what, what, what were those conversations, or did they talk about it?
1: Well, so in 1976, I was about the same age as D.A. Pierce, and I honestly don't have very clear memories of that being a topic of conversation at all. In fact, when I was doing the research to see if Mary Rose would actually have had to drive to Albuquerque to get her abortion. You know, um, I had to do a little bit of reading and research into, to my old hometown. You know, and and it was true in 1976 there was not an abortion clinic in in West Texas. Um, the closest one was in New Mexico. So, or, or, or Austin, but she chooses to go to Albuquerque. Not that, that's not that great a difference. I think sometimes the vastness of Texas is hard for people, I think, to, to totally sort of grasp sometimes. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have clear memories of abortion being a particular topic of conversation in the 1970s. And again, I was a little girl. I was about 10 years old in 1976. What I do have very clear memories of is turning 13 in nineteen eighty and And the you know the beginning of the Reagan years, and suddenly abortion was everywhere in my hometown in the churches, in group meetings, at the junior league at schools, and suddenly it did become you know a kind of hot topic of conversation and um and 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 unsurprisingly, because that part of the world has always been deeply conservative and deeply fundamentalist, you know um, unsurprisingly the you know, the general sort of word on the street was that abortion was a terrible thing, that it killed a baby, you know, the usual, the, the you know, the the usual bullshit that prevents women from making choices about their bodies. And I think, you know, there are all kinds of interesting <laughs> reasons why that that kind of, that kind of anti-woman attitude is so deeply sewn into the fabric there, you know, that's the, that has to do from the same kind of places, the racism, right, which is stitched into the fabric from the get-go, so,
4: so you were talking a little bit about the vastness of Texas, and I wanted to talk a little bit about landscaping your book and how it connects to this law and, and to, to SBA to um, that history that you're talking about. And in the very opening scene of your book, uh, we meet we meet Gloria Ramirez, uh, who's just been assaulted by a man named Dale Strickland, and you describe the landscape she has to walk through to get away from him, and it's it's both beautiful and just horrifyingly bleak, and I wonder if you could describe that area a little bit and and read us a short description.
1: Sure. So the Permian Basin, where the novel is set, is about 86,000 square miles of oil and gas-rich land. Um, That's been, you know, kind of a hundred-year sort of slow-rolling environmental disaster since the the Penwell came in, in and I guess it was 1918. And uh, sparsely populated, um, beautiful and quiet. Um, I agree, it's desolate and bleak. Um, I also happen to fall into the category of people who think that part of the world is lovely, and so I, I, um, I like lonely and bleak places. Um, and I think a lot of people who live out there do. So for me, that 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 he takes her out into the desert, into the oil patch, was not a not a direct attempt at like drawing a parallel between the, the land and the oil and gas industry and what happens to her, right? I mean, the truth is he could have taken her anywhere, right? And this sort of thing happens all the time. What's, what you know, it has less to do with the isolation of the area and more to do with the, the lack of care, right? For a 14 year old Latina girl. And of course, you know, the kind of, a kind of deeply ingrained um, culture of, you know, men taking what they want mostly with impunity, right? Um, So, but it's beautiful. Um, The Chihuahuan Desert is a major flyover zone for migratory birds, Um, maybe because I've lived most of my life in cities since I left home. As I've gone back over the years, I've come to appreciate, um, you know, the incredible, um, you know, the night sky and the stars and the, the ability to be away from people very quickly, right? I think that's something that's certainly lost in my life here in Chicago and And at the same time, the land is also deeply distressed um, and of course, that's gotten worse and picked up steam with you know the the fracking and horizontal drilling that's kind of run amuck in the last few years so um so for example, you know they um they are suffering earthquakes down there, you know um rates of cancer are a bit higher than the national average um, you know the the social problems are pretty endemic and and in spite of billions of dollars flowing out of the Permian Basin every year, or every day really, um, they have some of the worst public schools in the state, some of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy. And that has been consistent from the time I was a child to today so oh, to that part of the Permian Basin economically is working class, you know, during the best oil boom, the average person in my hometown is just kind of earning a living, right? And of course, the minute there's an oil bust, their their jobs are gone. And, and you know, because I often tend to, to frame these things in terms of class, um, one of the things that's been interesting to me is the enormous, um the enormous disparity between what men earn in Odessa and what women earn. So, for example, you know, if you look up Boston, men always earn a little bit more, right? You know, if you if you look up any place, men always earn a bit more than women. But if you look up, you know, the 2010 census from Odessa, which was a boom, right, you would see that the average salary for a man, the average yearly income for a man was about $51,000. And for a woman, it was nineteen. So, I know, isn't that horrifying? Oh my God. And it's totally unsurprising, right? Because the jobs that are available to women in an oil town are waitressing and bartending. You know, when I was a kid, um, you know, going to college was a thing that a few people did, (laughs) not many, right? I mean, and you had to drive hundreds of miles to do it. You know, Um, there's a community college in town. And so I think that, you know, the geographical isolation, um, the kind of some things that are sort of inherent to the oil industry, you don't have a lot of women working as roughnecks even today. And you certainly didn't in the 70s. Um, so it's a very male dominated profession. The The economy of the town does not lend itself to women having good paying jobs that would give them, frankly, right, the freedom to make decisions about their bodies, <laughs> you know, and to, you know, and to I mean, I, I don't want to put too fine a point. On it or sound redundant, but, you know, just the, the, the very simple fact of having a reliable vehicle that can drive you several hundred miles across the desert, right, to get to a healthcare facility is, you know, a daily reality. So
4: such an American problem.
1: Right. Yeah, it just seems like so. Yeah,
4: I mean, I live in Minnesota, and right, so much of care is concentrated in the Twin Cities. Uh, I think people in surrounding states are also coming here mm-hmm. and having to drive so, so far. Right. I just, it's it's interesting to me also that I don't know when I think about writing about abuse, writing about sexual assault, um, and I think about sort of like what is the moral value of the metaphor mm-hmm. in this context, and you're you're sort of telling me that it that this is sort of putting this incident in the oil patch is like not. It's, it's, she, he could have taken her anywhere. Yeah. You said, and it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, at the same time, you're talking about all of these other kinds of violation. Mm-hmm. And I, as a reader, sort of can't help but see um, the isolation of the place, the bleakness, the inhospitable nature of the surroundings, that all of this, which to me sort of plays into the attack. And, you know, it seems to me like what allows him to get her alone.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, certainly easier, right? I mean, there's it's so sparsely populated, particularly once you get out of, you know, out of town. There's nothing out there, right? Um, and at the same time, I mean, you know, the land is just the land, right? The land isn't a metaphor for anything. It's just the land. <laughs> you know, it's the people that I was interested in in this book and how they survive and how they, you know, um, sort of uh you know, make their way in, in you know, the, the, inhospitable, the inhospitable environment is, is, a, is a human made. It's like know, the um. industry.
2: I mean, the industry is what creates the disparity between men and women, as you were just uh, outlining, that it's much easier to make money as a man in, a, in, a, in an oil economy than it yes. is if you're a woman.
1: Right. Well, sure. And and of course, the oil and gas industry has had such a stranglehold, you know, on government in that state, really from the get go. I mean, it is written into the Texas Constitution that you cannot do anything on your land that would interfere with oil and gas exploration. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like it is it is, you know. They, you know, politicians in the state of Texas, Republican and Democrat, you know, get in, you know, enormous amounts of money from the oil and gas industry every year, you know, so they really have a stranglehold on policy. And of course, you know, I I don't want to sound cranky and, you know, conspiracy theory minded, but, you know, again, it is not lost upon me that all of these abortion laws, not just this one, but all of them have always affected, you know, black women. Latinas, poor women, rural women, um, with no, you know, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't choose this old-fashioned word lightly, but frankly, if, you know, Greg Abbott, or, you know, who's his merry little psychopath sidekick? Um, oh, God, what's his Lieutenant name? Lieutenant
2: Governor guy. Yeah.
1: Uh, Ken Paxton, for God's sakes. You know, if their mistresses get knocked up, they'll just throw them on a plane and send them out of state. You know what I mean? Like, they're not going to suffer for a moment, from these laws. These laws have always, and frankly, I think there's a, a deep interest in, in depriving women and people of color of power in that state by keeping them poor and unable to vote and keeping them pregnant, frankly. You know, it works. It works for that system. You know, and my entire hometown is built on a system that works because women don't make a lot of money and they don't have a lot of options. And of course, I'm painting with really broad strokes here. So and at this and i also don't want to you know I, you know, my hometown is suffering horribly right now. Um, people are dying by the droves in my hometown from covid um, and, you know most of them unvaccinated and and that's heartrending um, so I, I I hesitate to kick my hometown while it's already down, but more importantly i, I wouldn't want to you know, to be dismissive of the women and girls who have got boots on the ground, who are doing the hard work as we sit here and talk, you know, and I sit here in Chicago, you know, um, and have been for 40 years. Um, You know, on September 1st, again, when I was kind of, you know, rage scrolling, I came across an article from El Paso Matters um, and it was talking about women along the borderlands and how they've been moving, you know, um, the morning after pill back and forth across the border for decades. Right. To help each other. Um, And because the state of Chihuahua is dreadfully, dreadfully conservative, um, you know, and uh, and the work that they've been doing and, and the name of the article, I can't remember the name of the article, but it was basically like, you know, border activists, you know, remind us of the resilience, right, of this fight and how long it's been going on. So.
2: Well, the you're talking about the reality of Texas. There's also the myth of Texas and, you know, that, that oil industry and the landscape or the thing that's famously supposed to be the source of Texas's big independent streak, especially when it comes to government interfer- interference. On our last WTF Texas episode uh, was about the power blackouts in Texas, which were in part caused by the state's insistence on having a power grid that was separate from all the other power grids in the United States. So in order to avoid regulation, so I genuinely and, and sincerely am curious to uh, how e- how an effort to turn every Texas citizen into an abortion regulator fits with this ethic of independence. And maybe we can talk about specifically how the law SB eight does that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a puzzle, isn't it? <laughs> um, and it's and it's incredibly. You know, what, what, is, what is unique about SB8 is the cruelty of it. And I think we've seen a lot of that coming out of Texas in recent months. You know, there seems to be a little edge of cruelty um, to everything from the way people are being treated along the border to the anti-trans kids bills, right? Yeah, it, this basically, you know, puts women in the position of, you know, being afraid to go to their priest or their pastor or their rabbi, right, or their teacher, um, or their neighbor, you know, it turns everyone into an enemy. And, it, and I think it further... Um, well, specifically,
2: we, just to say, so as the leaders are following us, in case listeners don't know this, I think most will, that, you know, what the law is doing, the way it's enforcing and, and ending abortion in Texas is that it, it gives people... The, it incentivizes people to report anyone who's supposedly assisting in an abortion being carried right. out beyond six weeks... And if they successfully turn the person in, they get ten thousand dollars. If I'm understanding the law correctly, right?
1: Yeah, and you know, and that's a good argument for civil disobedience, right? I mean, and I hope that's something that I've been very heartened to hear. A couple of clinics in recent days talking about how they're going to start to perform abortions again no matter what, and just let the chips fall where they may. And I, and I hope that people who've got money to send, (laughs) you know, will do that and, and help these clinics, you know, basically do the right thing, which is, you know, to, to act in defiance of this law. Um, you know, I think, um, guys like Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton get a lot of mileage out of the idea that well-intentioned, thoughtful people of, of good, you know, of good, of good intention and, uh, and who want to do the right thing, you know, frequently show up to these fights with knives, right, where, and they bring guns, right, I mean, to use that old, you know, kind of, I mean, um, we, we show up with, you know, we want to follow the laws, we want to do the right thing, and that gets us every time, right, because they don't care, right, they don't care if their own citizens die, Right. They don't care if poor women die of botched abortions. There's no there's no bottom. Right. But to get to your question of, you know, the kind of myth of the rugged individual. I mean, what I would say is that, um, again, I mean, I think a lot of that has always been bluster and bullshit. And the myth of the rugged individual has always in Texas only applied to a very small group of people, Um, you know, um, you know, the great state of Texas has never encouraged the rugged independence of, you know, black women in Houston, for example, you know, um, they've never encouraged the rugged independence of Latinas, you know, living on, along the borderlands, you know, they've never encouraged the rugged independence of poor white women living in far rural West Texas, you know, so that, that sort of, um, fetishizing, right, of rugged independence is, is, I think, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, has has always belonged to a, a very particular group of moneyed, white, mostly male Texans.
4: So you've mentioned Greg Abbott a couple of times, and I think you called Ken Paxton his, his merry psychopath sidekick, which is maybe how I will. I think that's actually going to erase his name from my mind. <laughs> um, and. I I wonder, you know, just he, Greg Abbott said that he wanted to, um, and I'm quoting here, eliminate rape as he signed this right. law. But that's a very difficult task. And especially in a culture that, as your novel shows, design, it's designed to hide and obscure sexual violence. And how did we get from Ann Richards? I mean, mm-hmm. I remember growing up reading about Ann Richards. She was governor of Texas from 91 to 95. How do we get from mm-hmm. Ann Richards to, to Greg mm-hmm. Abbott and his, his merry
1: sidekick mm-hmm. psychopath? Well, and I would say, too, that... Um, you know it's it's not just that it's difficult to elimin, eliminate rape in texas right it's it's an it's disingenuous he doesn't mean it he doesn't give a shit. you know i mean he's 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 saying what he thinks he needs to say but he doesn't care um because the system is working very well for him and and all of those with whom he surrounds himself right so i i i think you know to talk about eliminating i mean how would you eliminate rape in texas i mean you, you know, you would have to get rid of people, guys like Greg Abbott, you know, it's, it's disingenuous. And, um, and he has no interest in passing any real laws that would actually tighten, you know, rape restrictions. I mean, this is, it sounds brutally unkind to a state that I love, you know, but I don't love the leadership to say that um, at the end of the day, they, they just don't care what happens to their people right you know and by they i mean the the autocrats who run the state right when people talk about so texas goes so goes the rest of the united states i mean i think that that's uh not an unhelpful way to look at the state of texas you know if some of these like anti voting restrictions continue to make their way through the system you know i know whitney you're in missouri and y'all are eyeballing i think a similar law to the the one that's passed in texas so oh um, yeah
2: we're going to do you that know,
1: but, but this idea of keeping people poor, you know, keeping them, you know, um, pregnant, you know, it sounds so old school and old fashioned, but, you know, it's very helpful to prop up a system that's very, very, very good to a certain segment of the Texas population. Um, to answer your question about Ann Richards, honestly, I think Ann Richards was a kind of brief shining anomaly in a much larger sort of overall trajectory that is Texas and Texas history. So um, she was great. I wish that there'd been more like her. Um, it's it's I think you could argue that you know the backlash to her was pretty significant. so
4: of course, the reason that Abbott, the bizarre successor to Anne Richards, is talking about eliminating rape is that the law makes no exceptions for cases of rape or incest, and you'd have to carry the child to term, and so this you know would happen to your protagonist glory. The discussion of incest and rape exceptions are important and stark ways to discredit a law like that. But what is also being lost is the ability of a character like Mary Rose, who is the first person to encounter Glory. Mary Rose wants to get an abortion on her own, not because she was assaulted, but because she doesn't want any more children. Um, You referred to her a little bit earlier driving to Albuquerque. I wonder if you could read us a passage about that.
1: Sure. So... This is deep in the book and Mary Rose has, um, she's 25 when the book opens and already has a nine year old daughter. And um, you know, she finds herself uh, driving to Albuquerque because she's pregnant and doesn't want to be. Um, And that's about 350 miles from her, her farm. And so I'll just pick up there. And she has to take her daughter, Amy, with her because she doesn't have anywhere else for her to go. So she basically tells her husband a a little white lie about going to to visit family, right? And she takes her daughter and she drives from West Texas to Albuquerque. And this this section begins when they're already at the clinic. This is legal, I keep telling myself. Has been for nearly two years. But it was hard to feel that way with a pack of lies, 400 miles and a state line under my belt. I stepped up to the window and spoke as quietly as I could, all while sliding the $300 that I'd taken out of my private savings account across the counter. I might have been buying cocaine. I was so covert. The receptionist smiled and slipped the money into a drawer. She handed me a clipboard and looked over my shoulder at Amy. Mrs. Whitehead, who is driving you home after the procedure? No one, I said. I am driving myself. You need somebody who can drive you home. You have somebody? I drove up from Texas. "'Ah, I see.' She paused and began chewing lightly on her fingernail. "'Are you spending the night here in town?' "'We're at the Holiday Inn,' I said, keeping my voice low. "'The new one that's downtown?' She smiled, speaking a bit more quietly, and I nodded. "'Okay, good,' she said. "'Some women try to drive all the way back home, "'and that can cause some complications. "'You're lucky,' she said. "'You'll be in for about two hours.' Two hours?' I looked back at my daughter who was sitting on a chair with a bag of potato chips and her Nancy Drew book. The woman reached across the counter and touched my hand. This happens all the time. We'll keep an eye on her. I stood there blinking hard and trying to bring the woman's hand into focus. Her fingernails were painted the color of pink tea roses and she wore a plain gold band on her left ring finger. Thank you, I said. Her name is Amy. To my daughter, I smiled brightly. I'll be back in a jiffy. "'Don't worry,' the woman called as I pushed open a swinging door and nearly walked into another woman, a patient, standing just on the other side. "'We're going to have a fine time. Would you like an ice-cold Dr. Pepper?' she asked my daughter. "'Yes, ma'am,' Amy said. "'Have fun with the furniture, man, Mama.' We stopped at Whataburger on our way back to the Holiday Inn. Amy watched cartoons while I threw up in the bathroom and waited for the cramping to pass. "'That hamburger didn't agree with me,' I said when she knocked on the bathroom door. "'Just give me a few minutes.' That afternoon, she swam and played the pinball machines while I sat on a lounge chair and drank a couple of salty dogs. Early the next morning, we headed up to the Sandia Mountains to smell the pine trees, pinyon, spruce, fir, juniper. I closed my eyes and imagined us living in a small wooden cottage deep in a forest full of creatures without intent or malice, a place where you might get hurt, but not because anything meant to harm you. Between stopping every hour at a filling station so I could change my pads, And twice more so Amy could throw up some of the candy I let her eat at the hotel. We didn't get home until nearly midnight. To my daughter, I said, I won't ever ask you to keep anything from your daddy unless it's really important. And this is really important. To my husband, I said, I have a bad yeast infection. Don't touch me for a while. Four months later, I was pregnant again. And this time, hardly believing my own stupidity, I decided to have the baby. Thank you so much. There's something that is now so
4: poignant about that line, this is legal, I keep telling myself, and I wonder if you were thinking about abortion rights being in danger in Texas when you wrote it, and and when did you write it?
1: So yeah, I, I worked on Valentine over many years, and while I don't actually remember exactly the year that I wrote this passage, I think the reality that abortion rights have always been in danger in Texas, you know has never really been very far from my mind. Um, What was interesting to me about writing that passage was two things. One, that she lies to her daughter too, right, and tells her daughter she's going to see a furniture man. And then the reality of that third unplanned pregnancy, right, and the way Mary Rose has, you know, also internalized this idea, you know, that she's, somehow doing something wrong. Right. I mean, you know, it's, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the practical implications of, you know, having to drive 350 miles to access healthcare that you're legally entitled to. Right. Um, but, you know, I've thought a lot, particularly in, in recent weeks about the psychological effect of women and girls, you know, sneaking out of the state right and and what that does you know and of course the the vagaries of fertility um that that one could have an abortion and find oneself pregnant again in 4 months and and the way that that mary rose sort of turns that on herself her own stupidity is what's landed her there instead of like the circumstances of her life you know and of course she's also a very young woman right i mean she's she had her first child when she was 16 17 years old so
2: One of the things I love about that passage is we're having this discussion and we, as as we did at the beginning of this interview, about how difficult it is to make the long drive and do, you know, like how, you know, but, but it's hard to feel that, right? Or to Mm -hmm. understand how it might apply in your own life and, and the little things that are in that passage, the, you know, the trying to figure out, oh my God, I didn't think about how to get someone to to drive me home. Okay. What's going to happen with my daughter? How do I... I have to lie to her. Nobody likes lying to their kids or asking Mm -hmm. their kids to lie for them. When the daughter says have a good time with the furniture man, you know, or whatever that you know, all of those things are extremely painful. I I, imagining telling doing all of those things, manipulative things, for a thing that you have every right to do and that's legal, right? Mm. Is one of those is one of the things that we're really discussing about here, but I think literature gets at in a way that facts Mm. don't.
1: Well and something I was aware of even as I was writing it was how incredibly lucky she was, right? I mean I remember when I wrote that line that they checked into the Holiday Inn. I was like, Well shit, they get to go to the Holiday Inn and spend the night, you know? I mean they've got the money to do that, right? I mean this is a this is a heartrending scene and I'm not Discounting, you know, Mary Rose's son, my character suffering because it's real and true. But she's growing up cer- in
2: the bathroom, and she, doesn't she has doesn't a private to savings account that she, she can pull. tell her kid, oh, it's no big deal. It's no problem. Right. I mean, that would be hard. That's not an. It's easy terrible, thing to do. you
1: know. And at the same time, she has a private savings account, right? I mean, she's got a good car. I mean, so it's heartrending. And at the same time, in a lot of ways, what makes it even more heartrending to me is that she would actually kind of count among the lucky ones, right? that she could pull this off in the first place and that's there are young women and girls in my home state this minute who are, you know, staring down motherhood because they just can't figure out a way to fucking get out of there and that's heartrending. But I'm I'm so mindful that, you know, that there are organizations and groups down there and individuals, you know, who have been fighting this fight for a really really long time. And, and so when I think about, you know, resistance and, and you know, and the women in my book and, and the women in the state now, you know, I think a, a lot about the, the boots that have been on the ground for a very long time doing this every day.
2: You sent us a really good article that was an example of this from The Atlantic from 2016 about Karen Hildebrand, who is the CEO of Planned Parenthood in West Texas. Uh, we'll include that in the show notes. But so this has been going on for a long time.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Planned Parenthood in Midland, you know, just started performing abortions in what was it, 1995, you know, um, and they're gone now. They've been driven out. (laughs) Um, and, And women in my hometown, Odessa, 23 miles away, had to drive to Midland. And one of the things that was interesting to me about that article, and again, this is not 1976, this is 1995, you know, the Clinton years, you know, I mean, when... You know, all was groovy, you know, and when it came to certain things, you know, women's rights, I guess, kind of, I mean, but my point is, is that, you know, that the the abortion clinic that opened in in Midland opened in 1995 and hung on until 2012, right? And they were only doing abortions a couple of days a week. And the women they were servicing were still having to drive in from hundreds of miles away right because midland and odessa is geographically isolated as it is it's less geographically isolated than say women who live down by presidio or marfa you know or um stanton right i mean it's if you look at a map of west texas it's freaking enormous and there's not much out there so women were already driving in you know um and of course the harassment those women endured was fascinating to me. Death threats, right? You know, people turning their children, telling their children that their mommies were murderers. I mean, it's just, you know, this is, this is, eight is not nothing, is nothing new, really. So, I mean, I think a lot of my girlfriends here in Chicago would disagree with me, but, you know, I, it, it's not really much different than what's already been going on there.
4: Well, Beth, this has been such a helpful glimpse into that deeper history. And I, I do think, you know, as I read the news and I see the the sort of beginnings of defiance or beginnings of open defiance, mm-hmm. um, you know, doctors like the one who wrote that op-ed in The Post, mm-hmm. um, you know, or other clinics that you mentioned saying that they will be providing abortions, that also seems to me very Texan. And mm-hmm. the way that the story moves from Glory and immediately to, to Mary Rose and then the way that we see other women standing up for Glory, mm-hmm. as there's a set of men who are hell-bent on sort of characterizing her as a woman instead of a child, or... <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. ask the, the ways in which there's something so also terrifying about reading the story set in nineteen seventy six and recognizing all of these strategies, the ways that particularly um women and girls of color faulted for their own sexual assaults. And and but then the way that this sort of circle of women, the structure of the book reflects that, the the strength that you're referring to in, in terms of resistance, um, which was something about the book that, that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um so I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really
1: appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really hopeful that some um white women of means in Texas, more white women of means in Texas will start putting themselves on the line and being able to, being willing to make the same kinds of sacrifices that black women and Latinas have been making for a really long time in that state.
2: Thank you very much. And we will encourage our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of Valentine.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
2: And now we're thrilled to welcome Katherine Nurnberger to the show. Kate's latest book is The Witch of I, which is about witches and witch trials. She is also the author of the poetry collections Rue, The End of Pink, and Rag and Bone, as well as a collection of lyric essays, Brief Interviews with the Romantic Past. Her awards include the James Laughlin Prize from the Academy of American Poets, an NEA Fellowship, and notable essays in the Best American Essay Series, she teaches poetry and nonfiction for the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. Where have I heard of that before? But before that, um, she uh, taught here nearby where I live at the University of Central Missouri. And now she is Sugi's colleague. Kate, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's nice to be near you again virtually,
4: Whitney and Sugi. It's always <laughs> nice to see you. Kate, it's great to have you back on the show. And you just published two books, one of essays and one of poems, which prompts me to ask you, what are you, some kind of witch. Can we start off by talking about um, the connections between these two projects and how they sort of almost dovetailed in terms of publication?
3: Sure. Um, Well, I started writing the poetry collection, Rue, when I was living in rural Missouri on an old, um, well, my partner was trying to make a homestead of of a defunct farm. And um, while I was living there, this was in the period in Missouri where reproductive rights were being pretty steadily eroded in our state um, through all kinds of like specious um, requirements that um, Planned Parenthood and other providers had to go through in terms of like the width of the hallways, or they were creating hoops for doctors to jump through in terms of certifications, um, just all manner of um, chipping away um, relentlessly at um, at the right to choose, and I was feeling in this rural community, this rural conservative community, the like the alienation, the loneliness, the <laughs> I was also in the rage of being trapped inside of, um, I don't know what I would describe as an aspiring patriarchal theocracy that had really um, was kind of running the show there. And um, yeah, so it was a hard place to live, and I was angry all the time, and I didn't really feel like I had a lot of people to to or connect with in that community. So, um, so I started talking to the flowers in our field. And um, when I say talking to, um, I sometimes mean in a deeply addled way. And I sometimes mean in terms of um, researching them, harvesting them, experimenting with their um, food and medicinal properties, um, and then writing like with them or about them. Um, and what I found in the course of that, that um sad strange time in my life whenever I looked up these plants was that almost all of them at somewhere in the list of their uses and had this euphemism used to provoke the menses which is a way of saying used for birth control and there was something about that that struck me as sort of um wonderful just to have this sort of like um defiant counter-narrative about what it is to be natural what it is to be alive what it is to be a, a flower in the field just sort of like constantly um blooming around me so um Yeah. So I was writing poems about them and feeling invigorated by their presence in my life. And um, but running into that euphemism used to provoke the menses, I was like, okay, so like I kind of get it. But like when I started writing the poems, we want to be specific um, and have imagery. I I didn't want to write a a cookbook or a how-to manual because I don't think there are... um, they're not the most reliable method for birth control. I don't want anybody to feel like they have to use Queen Anne's lace instead of just get a prescription from their doctor or go to Planned Parenthood and get um, get an abortion if that's um, what they choose to do. But I wanted the poems to feel vivid and I couldn't figure out what part because no one was willing to say anything specific because, you know, maybe you'll get prosecuted or maybe that wisdom has been erased by centuries of oppression. So I had this idea when I wasn't finding out any details that maybe I would look at witch trials because I had heard that many of the accused witches had been midwives. And I thought maybe like maybe like the spells that they were using or their description of their rituals. I thought maybe somewhere in there would be like information I could kind of like read a counter narrative into and figure out how the plants were being used. And I didn't find that at all. But I did find these like really rich, fascinating um, portraits of people who were just in many cases, just middle fingers at the patriarchy in all directions in those trials. And um, that was a different sort of delight for me. So um, so I ended up kind of like <laughs> floating on both of these research tracks and um, writing in different ways, but with a similar, a similar mood in mind.
2: I mean, obviously, witches were hunted in America um, as they have, and they've been used as a way, a sort of euphemism for basically like hey, this is a woman who doesn't do what we want from the male point of view, and so let's call her a witch, and that's what we're going to make her easier to attack, right? And we're looking at, uh, you know, privates. We've been talking about SB8 and the Texas abortion law in the earlier parts of the show, and we now have a situation where private citizens are being rewarded for going after abortion providers, and, and, which sort of seems like a, a different way of reporting witches, in, in, in essence, right? And I wondered if you could just talk about, that entry point you've done this already like just expand on that a little bit about the way that you write about witches in the witch of eye and how you connect that to contemporary american life
3: yeah so witches are just women with agency is an expression i've heard and um what was interesting to me is is so the reason midwives often seem to come into the crosshairs of so in the medieval and early modern period it was only recently that the definition of like when life begins could even be like conception wasn't even like a notion it was quickening was was the working definition of when a pregnancy began for like much of the period when the witch trials would have been happening and so so what happened before that was just uh regulating the menses provoking the menses it was considered like a like a normal part of your your health care not controversial so that's part of why any like plant medicines or other ways of inducing abortion that um, midwives might have been practicing wouldn't have been considered a crime or wouldn't have been on their radar. What was um, considered problematic to the power elite in many instances. I mean, the witch trials gone for like 800 years, and every one has its kind of different histo- historical peculiarities or particularities. Um, but one of the through lines that would happen is um, so if you're a midwife. That's so long. Yeah, so long. <laughs> seems
2: crazy.
3: Um, and so many different scapegoats at different moments, right? Like, so sometimes it might be midwives. Other times it might be um, people that we would now describe as LGBTQ plus or other times it would be Jewish people. Like there's so many different different ways to marginalize on other people and then use that as an excuse to pin whatever your, like, civic problem is on them. So, um, but midwives were able to be financially independent because um they were basically the doctors of their communities like um, what we think of as like modern medicine and the idea the male notion of the doctor doesn't really emerge until after the enlightenment so for for much of human history it's it's women who are delivering babies and then also like just generally responsible responsible for people's health care and you pay people for that if they have special specialized knowledge so what you end up with is women in the community who are trusted with secrets and trusted with knowledge and trusted with money and they end up in many cases being able to own their own property and be of independent means which of course this is um, bedeviling to the patriarchy like oh my god something's wrong with that person because she is able to be in control of her own life um, in a way that we
4: generally are able to prevent
3: from happening to certain members of our
4: society. Right, and then that sort of agency is unnatural, mm-hmm. right, and unfeminine, and um, all of that sort of thing. And, and in the introduction to The Witch of Eye, you write, and um, I quote oh. here they call the old women crones, hags, cunning women, and witches. Mm-hmm. Names to make a daughter think she should devote herself to becoming something, anything other than what she is. Like the women I descend from, the ones called hysterics and manics obsessives and depressives, I feel as if I have an aspen grove that stretches from my stomach to my throat. It was interesting because I, I read this, I was lucky to be an earlier an early reader for this book and to kind of go back to it in the context of this conversation and think about SB8 was really interesting because you're of course pointing right there to this the contested the the publicly contested part of a woman's body. And there's a sense of a movement that's really desperate to prevent women from becoming as powerful as their witchy, independent mothers and, and another movement that's been successful in bequeathing knowledge about our bodies from our stomachs throughout the rest. I mean, just thinking about what you said about um, provoking the menses, I've been doing a little bit of research on reproductive rights and abortion providers in Sri Lanka, where I think for a long time, like it's been referred to as quote unquote womb cleaning, which is, I think another, I think it's common and that one is common in other places as well. And I wonder if you can talk a little about women's generational and informal and communal knowledge, like the ways that that knowledge exists outside and beyond institutions and the law and And how that knowledge works in the fight for women's health care
3: so one of the reasons I was drawn to the to writing about witches too, I think was um I started writing about them in the during the trump campaign and then like in the wake of trump's election, and so i was um i was feel i mean it's a very hopeless sort of of hope I was finding a very despairing sort of hope in their trials because their defiance mostly still ends in their death, like all they can figure out how to do is just um speak the truth of their experience and insist upon, like, their own, like, right to their integrity before, like, it goes really badly for them. And, like, just, like, I feel like we've been living through sort of years of just, like, just constantly whittling away at... Our hope for the future and our sense of rights and safety and security and we see that so many people I, I see so many people around me with like fewer rights than they started their lives with so okay so yeah so the witch trials i guess what i just want to say is it's a really depressing history and um and it's a sad sort of hope but when I want to really feel good, I think about the Jane Collective, which was this group of women who really did create um a underground um abortion providing underground network to provide abortions um in the period when it was illegal. Those medical practitioners went to jail for for providing. Um, Just for our listeners, what
2: years um, are you talking about I here? Also,
3: um, I'm pretty sure the Jane Collective um was the 50s, maybe the 60s is the 60s. Um, I'm also um, really fascinated by Angela Hume is a St. Paul based um, scholar and poet, and she's been writing about um, she's been writing about Pat Parker's work with um, the Women's Health Center in San Francisco creating. This was immediately after Roe v. Wade, as soon as abortions became legal. I mean, I think she was involved, too, in in Women's healthcare before that, but she was um, very active in creating a collective for providing women's healthcare services and navigating and pushing forward um, the laws to make um, healthcare widely available. So, so she was working um, both as a writer and also like starting a press and then using both the clinic to run the press and then using the press to run the clinic. Um, like having those sort of finances be pretty fungible in ways that I think are also really fascinating models. Let's see, I guess it's also maybe worth thinking about, like, so looking at the history of plant medicines, there was this medieval theory called the doctrine of signatures, which is that, like, it's not, it doesn't look great. It's not great science, like, um, that if you look at the plant, the plant will tell you what it can be used for, which is, um. How you get some kind of like notions about medicine those seem pretty wacky now, right? Which is like, oh, walnuts look <laughs> like brains, therefore they'll help you with your headache or liverwort, which does if not seem to Iver be particularly useful for If you look at ivermectin hard enough, livers. it'll make
2: you feel like it gets rid of COVID.
3: <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, but there are plants like toothbrite, where the blossom in spring maybe looks like a little tooth, and that does seem to have had like actual like there are actually properties in that plant that would like help to ease a toothache. And it seems to me that it. So the philosophers, the Catholic men were very excited about saying like, this proves the existence of God and God has given us these plants and makes the plants look like what they what God intends us to use them for, which is kind of fun to think about when you're like encountering all these plants that are that are used for birth control. Right. If you've been like me, if you've been raised inside of an oppressive Catholic um, tradition that kept insisting that you need to follow God's plan to have a baby. And then you're like, well, if God made all these plants (laughs) and they all can be used to provoke the menses, I'm not sure this all holds up, but I'm also really interested as a like a writer, a storyteller person interested in language. What I see in the doctrine of signatures is a really interesting oral tradition method, which is to say where you we are. Using these visual metaphors as a way to actually just like to carry for forward centuries of knowledge that can only be passed through the oral tradition, particularly because um, literacy wasn't available to the women who would have been uh, midwives. So it's there's this long tradition of trying to carry forward a ton of knowledge. The other place that you find the plant medicine information is um is once once literacy is more common is like they'll you'll find like oh like nineteenth century eighteenth century like cookbooks that are just teeming in the margins with um, remedies and ailments that it seems that women were swapping back and forth and jotting down in the same way they would recipes because they were the people who were responsible for their family's health care. Um, but all of these things are easily erased. And um, And while I love a scientific method and a double blind study and all of the mechanisms that make vaccines possible, I also like feel very aware of the ways in which a patri- the, the medical system that we have is um, deeply rooted in a kind of patriarchy um, that, that enters the sphere of healthcare in like the wake of the enlightenment and actively sought to eradicate midwives from the field as much as possible and so like also like right so you have like this long history of knowledge being passed through the centuries through the oral tradition and then like once men get involved in delivering babies well like all of a sudden you have this like massive increase in maternal mortality because you have all these male doctors coming in inter- like delivering babies but introducing sepsis per fever and all these problems because like they spent the morning dissecting cadavers, and then they come to the you know spend the afternoon delivering babies, and they don't wash their hands in between, and they can't figure out why all their patients are dying, and they don't notice that the midwives' um, patients are like, like it wasn't until they noticed um, the dramatically um, the the dramatic disparities between their outcomes that they realized they needed to wash their hands and stop touching dead bodies before they delivered babies.
2: In that same introduction that we've been talking about and uh, the question that Sugi asked, you write that, by the way, the ivermectin thing, not connected to what you're talking about, just a little joke that I slipped in there. And I don't think they're part of the same tradition in any way. But I do think, like, the reasons that you talk about the, for distrusting healthcare is, like, in the air, you know, like, and, and, and there are legitimate ones, right, that happen over time, for instance, in the black community, which we've also talked about on the show. And for those reasons why women would distrust healthcare, and that doesn't help right? When you're trying also to get people to trust it, to to take a medicine that would help them and it's not working to get them to trust it. Uh, All right. So in that same introduction, you write that for a thousand years, the theory of medicine was the same as the theory of magic. The thing that knits these worlds together across generations in so much of your work um, is plants, like we've been talking about here. Can you talk a little bit about that, which you have already, and then read from your (laughs) poem uh, regarding uh, sylphium?
3: Yeah, well, I think um, what I want to say about plants being used for birth control is that um, sylphium, which I'll read to you about in a second, is the only one I encountered that seems to have, like, that has any any legends of being re- anywhere near as reliable or efficacious as anything we have now, right? So, like, I'm interested in this history of plants for reasons related to, the, the- like, undermining the oppressive theology that I was raised inside of because I'm interested in like attending to the ways that we're intertwined with our ecosystems. Um, I'm not interested in eating queen Anne's lace seeds and crossing my fingers that it will work to not have a baby. Right. Like, like, um, so I guess, don't try this at home kids. Don't try it at home. Like, like, it's notable that all of these, um, methods were erased because, um, because that's about control. And it's also just worth clinging to our extremely reliable and efficacious um, birth control that we have at present, um, or at least that some of us still do. So regarding Silphium, the birth control of the Roman Empire for 600 years, extincted by careless land management in the year 200 AD. When I was just about done being married and he was a blossomed out nerve of seeing himself through the ugly eyes of how I had come to see him and myself for letting our lives get so Tupperware fur molded, for thinking I could lace and pinprick it back with just the right delicacy, when a good punch in the face was what a mess this bad required. I know, you're thinking a punch in the face is never the answer, but that's the lace talking. When I was just about done with the lace-throated maybe-violence-or-daughter, our is five, told me how he broke. She didn't say he broke. She said he got really worked up, driving past all the protesters outside Planned Parenthood on Providence Avenue, from which the university medical school had just withdrawn funding, and also the option for residents to do training there. How he took a hard left into the parking lot and, with our daughter by the hand, marched in with an urgency that made the young man working the desk say, sir, with some alarm. He took a breath to be more steady and said, I'm so sorry about all of this, all of that out there, and I just thought I'd make a donation. As he pulled all the money from his wallet, some of it crumpled, a mixture of fives and ones and pushed it across the counter. Our daughter watching and looking around the room, studying the faces of timid and nervous young people I imagine in those plastic chairs. I remember from when when I once sat in this exact waiting room myself so many years ago, feeling embarrassed and ashamed because it seemed that's what I was supposed to feel. Though if I could have felt my way beyond supposed to back then to my actual self, I would have known I didn't feel sorry at all. Only annoyed by the tedium of appointments, the practical necessity of that clean smell, the chilly, dustless air of a building with nothing soft except the aspect of the resident, who is the only doctor I've ever had who joked as she put her gloved hand in my body. I guess this is the most awkward thing you'll do today, huh? It was funny and made me feel like we've been friends a long time. My husband, who is still my husband after all, knew that story, and I guess he wanted our daughter to somehow know it too. Sometimes you'll feel very alone, I tell her on a day when I find her pressing her face against the window, watching the children next door play in the grass, wiping tears from her face as fast as they fall. Other times, you'll be so wonderfully surprised by the strange bridges people manage to build out to you, when you never would
4: have expected they could. Thank you so much. Sylphium isn't the only, and I'm actually not sure I know how to say it, abortifacient. Am I saying it Right.
3: Um, I've heard people say abortificant or abortifacient.
4: Okay. I guess I'm going to go with abortifacient. Just say it with confidence
3: and know what I'll doubt you.
4: Abortifacient. Um, Silphium isn't the only abortifacient you wrote about, of course, because you, you wrote about pennyroyal.